and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. We have a very interesting show for you today. Two questions for our listeners. One, do you believe in UFOs? And two, have you ever seen one? Our guest today is Cheryl Costa. She is a native and resident of upstate New York who saw her first UFO at age 12. A military veteran, she's a retired information security professional from the aerospace industry. She's been a speaker at the International UFO Congress and at the Mutual UFO Network Symposium. Cheryl writes the UFO column, New York Skies, for SyracuseNewTimes.com. And besides being a journalist, she's also a published playwright. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from the State University of New York at Empire State College and entertainment writing. So, Cheryl, our uh, native New Yorker, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you very much, April. It's been a while since we've actually had someone on the show to talk about UFOs and UFO sightings. And as I was reading um, some of your research and posts, I had no idea that New York is considered to be the sixth ranked state in UFO sightings. Uh, actually, that was a, as of um, uh, 2015. Actually, current numbers is uh, New York is number four. Wow, really? Yep. Um, okay. In fact, you broadcast out of Kingston. Right. Kingston, New York. Yeah. Okay. Well, Ulster County is number 16 in New York State for sightings. And Kingston City is number 13 of New York State cities. Wow. And Mike was telling me before we got on the air that um, I'm not exactly sure where Pine Bush is, but he said um, like many years ago it was considered to be the UFO capital of the world. Is that true? Uh, it, it's the UFO capital of Ulster County, but it's uh, it's certainly okay. not the it's not one, the world. It's not, it's not the capital of UFOs in the world. It's not the capital of UFOs in the United States, and it's not the capital of UFOs in New York State. So okay. Suffolk County, <laughs> Long Island is. Oh, really? Okay. Pretty cool to hear that uh, we we are ranked fourth. So um, amazing. So I'm really excited to have you on the show because I know a little bit about the topic, but not a bunch, and I am ready to get educated. Um, I know that you co-wrote the book UFO Sightings Desk Reference, um, and that sounds really, really interesting. So I'm hoping you can also educate our listeners about what is going on in the skies. Well, when we started to do the book, uh, the idea started back in 2015. We were at a UFO conference, a big one. And I had a professor ask me for New York State sightings down in the Hudson Valley and specifically uh, at the county level. Well, neither of the two national databases really collected uh, the data at the county level, usually the city and state. And that was about it. So we attempted, since I write about New York State, I had to sit down and uh, pull the data, crunch it a little bit, and then we had to find a way to add city, uh, add county data to it. And uh, so we did. And it caused some remarkable responses from other UFO investigators here in New York State. There's some very seriously well-published good investigators here. So uh, it caused such a stir 
with the New York State rel- uh, investigators, we uh, Linda and I sat down at a pub in late October in 2015 and said, what if we did the whole country, you know? Right. And, and we just sat there and stared across our pints at each other and said, wow, it'd take a year. And in reality, it took us 18 months. Huh. And uh, the, the, the thing I also have to state up front, uh, Linda Miller Costa, who's also my spouse, she's the scientific brains behind the pro- the book. Okay, uh, she has a, a master's in library science. She used to work at the National Academy of Science, and she was the head librarian at the Environmental Protection Agency uh, in D.C. for 14 years. So when the idea of the book came up, she says to me, um, "Okay, there's not going to be any no cute aliens on the cover." It's going to it's going to look like a census report. It's going to be called a reference book. Again, as a librarian, she wanted it suitable to be in the reference section of a library. And she says it's going to be data. And uh, so I warn people right now, uh, the the book's available on Amazon. But the point is, is if you buy it, you're not going to get any cute stories or anecdotal information. It has got its charts, graphs and tables from 2001 to 2015 about sightings in all 50 states and and the district. And it's the book has all the charm of a bank ledger. (laughs) (laughs) but if if you're a researcher of any sort uh the secrets of the universe are in there i know other people who are basing books are have been working on books that use our data as a basis for going and researching specific because nobody ever done ufo reporting right down to the county level and 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 gathered the statistics so um the new york times found this to be remarkable uh, they had never said anything nice about UFOs in 70 years. And then one of their Pulitzer Prize uh, reporters uh, walked into the editors and said, uh, the UFOs, uh, some old ladies in Syracuse did the science. And he threw a two and a half pound book on their desk, you know, <laughs> and and they did a really big piece in Science Magazine, of all things, you know, and that really su- surprises. But what's happened is the book turned out to be the seminal book on UFO statistics because nobody had ever done this before. Right. Wow. So so tell us how you guys actually went about the collection of all of the data, how you're putting it together, what were your resources, where did you get the information from, okay. and how did you start to build it? Well, okay. Uh, since first thing you need to know, Linda and I were both contractors. We both uh, we had met in D.C. I, we were both down there. She was down there like 30 years. I was down there like 25 years. And we were what they called Beltway Bandits. Uh, we were uh, industrial contractors to the government. I worked for Lockheed Martin. She worked for a, a company that supplied uh, librarians to the government libraries. Okay. Okay. And what happened was... Um, when we did that thing for the New York State thing back in early 2015, uh, we made a lot of mistakes. We didn't know what we were doing. And we pulled down the data from the National UFO Reporting Center. And we also acquired data from uh, the MUFON organization, Mutual UFO Network. And we cleaned up the data. It required a great deal of sanitizing as we were cleaning it up. And this was just New York State. When we went to go add the county data to it, it took us months Okay, we because we again, we didn't know what we were doing. But as we figured out how to clean these things up, we wrote both being contractors and well trained, we wrote process procedures. So by the time we decided we were going to do 
all 50 states in the district, we had a, a three-ring binder notebook with document protectors in there with exact procedure. Do this first, do this second, do this third, and just like walk right down through. So if I had to do that whole book all over again right now, instead of taking 18 months, I could probably do it in about six months. And the actual crunching part, probably in about a month, but, uh, but it took us six months last time, you know, and, uh, so we know what we're doing now. Um, and that was, that was the biggest thrust behind it is learning a procedure, developing a procedure for how to clean up the data. Uh, there were, there were a lot of issues. Wow. Yeah. That it seems like it's when you're first starting out, such a huge undertaking, but, um, you know, like you said, once you kind of get into it, then you're able to organize it a little better than it kind of makes sense from there. Um, I know when I was on your Syracuse, um, News Times, I went to one of the articles about the diversity in the UFO statistics and the truth mm -hmm. is in the shapes. Yep. So um, when I was looking at this chart here, I, I guess, you know, like you said, you took out some shapes that were um, pretty popular, like triangles and things of that sort. I have never seen a UFO um, before in my life. So when I went on, I'm looking at this chart, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know there were all these different types of shapes and things that people are seeing and reporting. I just, you know, probably would assume what the typical UFOs are that you're seeing in the movies, you know, like the round, the big round ones, the lights, the multiple lights and the triangles. Yeah. And Flying saucers. I mean, flying saucers were the first big thing we were dealing with back in the 40s and 50s. And that, UFO, the actual term UFO, unidentified flying object, sort. If you look at the dictionary definition, it's almost synonymous with flying saucer. Right. So a lot of UFO researchers prefer to use the term UAP or unidentified aerial phenomena. But um, when we were writing the book, we wanted to go with the most popular term. Now, you use a little you mentioned something in the beginning of the program uh, asking your listeners if they believe in UFOs. Uh, be careful with that term. Belief makes it sound like it's like a like a faith thing. OK, mm -hmm. um, most people who there was a poll done in 19, uh, 2012 by the National Geographic, and they found that 36 percent believe in UFOs, 46 percent were on the fence and 70, 17 percent said it's 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 put kiss. OK. Mm -hmm. And uh, but 80 percent believe that the government's hiding what it knows. Mm -hmm. OK. And uh, it's something like 70 percent believe in ancient aliens, that kind of thing. So uh, the the idea behind it, most people I talk to, if they really have something to say about UFOs, it's not so much a sense of belief. It's a sense of no. I, mm -hmm. I know because I saw one. Uh, you wouldn't believe how many, When as a reporter, when I was reading the UFO reports and sanitizing certain reports to write articles about early in the, the column that I was writing for the Syracuse New Times. Uh, you know, I was afraid of like hoaxes and all this because people told me it's crazy people and all this kind of stuff. And the more I got reading in there, a lot of these things were extremely sincere um, but I'll give you another example. I, I mean, you could tell the, 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 the baloney. You could tell it after, after a while you got used to seeing, eh, and there are people who tell a really good lie. But for the most part, we thought most people were just being sincere and wanted to tell somebody because they saw something. And there were so many of these reports that you would read to say, I never believed in this stuff until the other night when my wife or my girlfriend or my mom saw this with me. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, back this past February, I'll give you another example. Uh, a local, the local cable company, and here in New York State, we have a cable company called uh, Spectrum, and their new service is, is run by Charter Communications. And their news team came over to my apartment, did an interview with me, and then they came over to that evening to a major library here in Syracuse to uh, to see me do a presentation that I was doing. To, I ended up doing it to about 150 people there. And it was my charts and graphs and statistics and some stories to go with it, particularly related to New York. And when they ran it, I expected it to one, run on a, like a one-day news cycle that it was going to run on 11 o'clock that night after the meeting, after the presentation, and then probably the next day. Okay, mm-hmm. that's a typical one-day local news story. Um, they had so many hits on their website where they had the story uh, posted. We were just coming into Martin Luther King Day weekend. They ended up putting it on 55 on the hour and ran it all weekend. Wow. <laughs> okay. I got over 100 phone calls here at the house. And, and when I first started getting them, I thought, oh, I'm going to get somebody yelling at me, calling me a crackpot or something. And <laughs> no, most of these things, almost every one of them was a call like, I know you'll understand. I saw you on television. I had this sighting 5, 10, 15, 60 years ago in one case, and they just wanted to get it off their chest Mm. because they never had anybody to tell. Right. Right. And I think you bring up a good point there, too. You know, um, just with however people feel about this to, again, again, like that whole belief thing. But, um, you know, if you do witness this, if you see a UFO, it could be a pretty startling and life-changing event. And if you don't have that community or those people, or, you know, people might think you're crazy. Ah, no, it was just a plane. You know, it was probably something going on in the military in the skies or whatever. It could be pretty isolating, I would think. Well, yeah, actually, I I hear it a lot from a lot of people. Or I told uh, some, I saw something, I told my parents, and they thought I was crazy. You know, I I hear that all the time. Or I told my, my, the rest of my family, and and they all thought I was crazy. Um, So there was just been this attitude, and it was propagated back in the late 40s, early 50s, more or less by the CIA, um, to discredit because basically what do you got with the ufo if you do not have uh, uh, let's say an off-world spacecraft if you do not have physical evidence then what you have is in my case the book here um the 2015 book where there was 121,000 sightings in the book okay not the actual sightings themselves just counting the what when and where okay no stories and 121,000 eyewitness accounts. Now, an eyewitness account, short of CSI-type evidence, you know, DNA and all that kind of stuff, short of CSI evidence, an eyewitness account can still get you convicted in any court in this country. So the only defense on eyewitness accounts is discredit the witness. Hence, we have the popular notion that was propagated back in the late 40s, early 50s, kooks and nuts and deranged people report these things or people seeking publicity report these things. And I've had people ask me, well, how do you deal with that in the reports? And I said, well, statistically, we wrote off, we say somewhere in our book, 5% of these sightings are probably bogus. Mm-hmm. And that's a re- that was a reasonable assumption based on what we had seen in the databases. That's still low. (laughs) 
you know. Yeah, but 5% against 120,000 or at the end of 2017, uh, 139,876, essentially 140,000 sightings. That's still a big number. A lot, but, right. But, yeah. but, you know, we had a bigger number. We had a number where people failed. They were so frightened, especially people we sensed were in like small towns. They mm -hmm. would give you all the information about the sighting, but they wouldn't tell you they uh, they wouldn't tell you what city they were in. They they in the blank. They either left it blank or say, "My mother told me not to tell you. My father told me not to tell you. The sheriff said not to tell you. My priest told me not to tell you. I'm scared to death to tell you." Wow. Where I live, and one person actually probably put it very succinctly. I live in a small country town of about 25 families. And if I report this for the family, uh, for, for this sighting, everybody in, in the 12 family or 25 families will know it's me. Mm -hmm. So there's that, that level of fear, again, by this propagated idea that uh, you'll get labeled as a kook or a nut. Right. Now, you mentioned earlier about, you know, the suspicion that our government knows, but they're they're basically not revealing the information. I know one of, you know, the most famous sites that every, a lot of people talk about is what's Area 51, the whole thing with Area 51. What's your take on the government and their involvement with researching UFOs or acting as if there are no such thing? Okay, here's the part where we're, I'm going to scare all your scare all your listeners. <laughs> Good, I love it. Okay, uh, back on December 16. Okay, uh, let's go back a little bit of history. Remember, I told you the New York Times really didn't say much about UFOs and they didn't report them because they thought it was stupid. You know, all this sort of thing for almost 70 years. They they did a lot back in 1947 because there was a lot of stuff going on that particular year. But for the most part, they just laughed it off. Okay. All right. In January of 2017, the CIA, who had said, oh, there's no such thing as UFOs. Nobody here, you know, believes in UFOs. OK, they declassified about 13, 000, uh, 13 million documents. Most of it was like Henry Kissinger cables and everything from back in the, the day, back in the Nixon, Nixon administration with Mideast negotiations, all that kind of thing. But there was a certain number of declassified documents that were now in the National Archives that were um, CIA research related. And it was very clear that the CIA, I, I downloaded all those PDFs, the CIA had uh, people in their OSI or Office of Scientific Information researching UFOs. And it was very clear they were doing it. Mm. And they were pulling their hair out about the data as much as Linda and I were pulling our hair out about the data. OK, mm -hmm. so um, I think that kind of thought out the New York Times a bit in their in their view that, hey, maybe there is something to this. Right. Two months later, in March, April time frame of uh, March time frame of 2017, Linda's Linda's and mine book came out. And like I said, a, re a major reporter came to them and threw this, you know, eight and a half by 11, 374 page book on the desk and said, there's the data. There's the science. Mm. It was eight months later that they broke the story about the Pentagon and the program they have at the Pentagon to research UFOs. December 16th last year. So the government's doing it. And the guy who was running the program at the Pentagon, his name is Lou Alessandro. He's now retired. I have interviewed him three times in the past year. Okay. And one, first thing he'll tell you, they're real. 
Two, we don't know where they're from, or you know, at least that part of it. Or I can't tell you. He'll tell you because my security oaths. But this past summer, I had dinner with him. And during the course of having that little bite to eat with him, I looked at him at one point and I says, you know, I, I know an awful lot about military classification as I was in the aerospace industry and I understand security. So I'm not going to ask you anything complicated, but I want to ask you one question. I said, since you had full authority with the research of this UFO stuff, and it was, when you really think about it, they really didn't care about the civilian sightings of UFOs. They were really more interested about the fact that these things are loitering over certain kinds of technology the military has. Okay. So, so he says, uh, I looked at him and I said, so did you have the permission? Did you have the authority to pick open all the other stuff the government had done over the last 70 years? And a guy's face lit up like, like a Christmas tree, like a kid on Christmas morning. And he was usually a very stoic. He had a very stoic look to himself, but he got up, he busted into a big smile. His eyes lit up. Okay, and that was I knew he couldn't tell me any more than that. But I said, so you got to look at all this stuff. He says, I got to look at all this stuff. It's amazing. I, I says, was there anything you couldn't look at? And he says, yeah, only the stuff that wasn't cataloged so we could find it. The government is notorious for not cataloging things properly and losing them. I'll give you an example. NASA lost the, the moon tapes, the, the land, original moon landing tapes. They've got terrible archivists, you know, uh, not so much the archivists as much as management of the archivists that don't let them do their job properly. So um, the guy who said, one, they're real, and he was in the government. And he was in the program that was research that was and still is researching uh, UFOs, particularly in the context of following our military around. And they do loiter around our advanced technology. Uh, he's a one, they're real. Two, I've seen all this stuff. It's amazing. And that's as far as he goes because because of his security oaths. But he did make a comment at the July MUFON convention this past July. This time next year. We are going to be having a very different conversation about this topic, mm. which suggests either we're going to have government disclosure or something else remarkable might be getting ready to happen. Right. And, you know, I've I've heard that, you know, and these are people speculating that the reason why the government hasn't, you know, been so open about their findings is because they really don't want to begin to create um you know, mass hysteria or people like freaking out, you know, like if you have the whole, uh, you know, population of maybe people who are extremely afraid or fearful, the end of the world is coming, what are aliens, you know, that it could just create too much chaos. What do you, what do you think? Well, okay. Uh, I just gave a talk at the uh, State University of New York at Albany. I came and spoke, uh, well, I was scheduled to speak to two journalism classes. I ended up speaking to three and to four classes, ended up presenting my full presentation to three of those classes. And the, one of the professors, uh, his family is from originally from the uh, from Russia and to some degree the, the former Soviet Union. And they talk about this thing very differently over there. It's it's like, you know, oh, oh, I saw a UFO. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, here, you know, your family says, oh, don't tell anybody. They'll think you're crazy. Again, because we've had this psyop on us to tell us, you know, don't talk about this stuff, right? So, um, yes, that 17% we were talking about in that poll that say we don't believe in this stuff, that 17% of the adult population might get rattled. OK, and there's, for good reason, back in uh, Halloween of 1938, 
uh, Orson Welles and uh, the Mercury Theater of the Air on CBS did this radio play of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Now, they did it in a format that was like a radio actuality, like it was real. Okay. Now, for people who tuned into the program, every time they broke for commercials, they came back and said, this is a theatrical radio play. Okay. But if you tuned into it, not knowing that, it sounded like Grover's Mill, New Jersey was getting wiped out by the Martians. <laughs> And they had the pro they had families taking their kids in the backyard, getting ready to shoot them in the head so the Martians wouldn't eat them. And there was there was this mass hysteria in the country and it was unique to this country. There's one more example. Back in nineteen ninety six, um the promotion of the movie Independence Day mm -hmm. in Spain, it was done like an actuality. So it looked like you were tuning in. If you were on television, uh, it looked like it was like a like a CNN broadcast type of thing. Wow. And they had riots in the streets in Madrid. Wow. Okay. So uh, there's been a big effort to educate people. Think about this now. Uh, we had the, what they call, in 1947, we had what they called the uh, Washington Nationals. These were two different weekends. The... UFOs showed up flying in triangular patterns. They weren't triangular craft. They were triangular patterns of these flying saucers. They allowed themselves to be seen on radar when they scrambled fighter jets from Dover to come down here and encountered these things. As the jets got closer, these things just started winking out like they weren't there or they 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 um, uh, cloaked themselves or they winked out of existence, whatever they did, but they just started winking out. A couple of them stayed, and when the jets caught up with them, they sat there and let the jets follow them, and then they just slowly pulled away from the jets. The jets couldn't keep up with them. In fact, there's a headline, famous headline, uh, 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 Air Force Jet or Army Air Force Jets uh, not uh, uh, outrun by flying saucer, you know, right on the front page of the Washington Post, you know. So uh, that was a major thing. Of course, the generals at the time took a took a position of uh, these aren't the droids you want kind of thing. Don't worry about a thing. We got everything under control. And in fact, they did not. Uh, there's a 1952 Life magazine where there's an article. Is there a case for interplanetary visitation? And front cover of the Life magazine. It's got Marilyn Monroe on it. It's a very famous cover. And I have a copy of that article. And it said the generals at the highest level of the Pentagon are very sober about this uh, these 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 um, unexplained craft. So it's been talked about for a long time. It's just that the rhetoric has been telling, oh, don't worry about a thing. Oh, don't just go on about your business. These aren't the droids you want. And that's the attitude they've taken. Most people are quite complacent in it. Um, but, but I'll give you an example. When I was writing the the the, the, the book here. 2001 to 2015. Uh, at the time, I was I retired from uh, from Lockheed, and I had a part time job at a bank. I was worked at, working up in the uh, invoicing department, and. You know who really teaches you how to work with spreadsheets? Bangers. You know, yeah. uh, you know, if I didn't have skills from crunching data at Lockheed, what little I was missing, I learned at the bank. Okay. So um, I came down to the coffee shop in the building we were in. And the baristas knew I was writing this thing. And one day, one, one day a guy says to me, uh, one of the baristas says to me, he says, hey, Cheryl, what'd you work on this weekend? I said, well, I worked on New York State. He says, how many settings did we have? I said, 5141. And 
I got somebody tapped me on the shoulder and it's this little lady behind me and she looks up at me and she's, did you just say there's like over 5,000 UFO sightings in New York City? I says, yeah, over the last 15 years, we average about 450, 500 a year here. We had to help her to a chair. She, the color went out of her face. Oh, jeez. <laughs> okay. Because it's slightly out of sight, outside of the average person's reality because uh, the stuff with flying saucers and stuff. Hey, that's the stuff of the movies. But remember one thing. After 1947, Roswell, all that kind of stuff. You know, Roswell fell off the, char- uh, off the newspaper after about a day. Mm-hmm. It only came back to life in the late 70s when one of the guys who was actually part of the cover-up down there, a former intelligence officer, he was dying of lung cancer, and he came clean to Stanton Friedman, a very famous writer, a UFO writer in uh, this community, and he came clean, and that brought the whole topic uh, up again. you know. And uh, so the, the whole bottom line of this thing is, yeah, it's been going on for a long time. A lot of people don't believe in it because uh, they've been told there's only kooks and nuts and this type of thing. The membership in a lot of UFO groups on Facebook shot up significantly after last December's announcements that the government was indeed truly doing it and and there was something to all this. Hmm. Now, I'd like to hear a little bit, too, about your experience when you were 12, but (laughs) with with, with that, um, I'd really like to know just your take on, like, what do you think the the UFOs are doing? You know, these um, beings from other galaxies or whatever, however they're traveling, like, do you have an opinion on why they visit, what they're here to do? You know, when I've gotten into... um, some other things of uh, people's explanations, you know, they're with the UFO community, the alien community. They would say that there are aliens walking among us, that there are mm-hmm. some that are very helpful and some that are not helpful at all. So I'd also like to hear your opinion on that. But I'd also like to hear uh, first your experience at age 12. All right. There, there's t- two total experiences in, in about a six year time frame. OK, uh, it's about 12. This is like 1965. It was late August, a couple of weeks before school, went back into session. We were visiting an aunt and uncle up in a farming community in, in southern tier of New York State. Uh, population in that town couldn't have been more than 100, 100 uh, people because it was just one of these little road crossing kind of communities in a farming area. And we were coming down off the hill, dirt road, actually, uh, from my uncle's farm. And my mother had my father pull the car off the side of the road. And uh, uh, it was my mother, my father, and my two toddler age brother and sister at the time. And my mother pointed out clear blue sky, western sky, clear blue. And out there parked like a rock was this shiny ball. Now, I'll give you an idea. Lift your finger out arm's length and look at your little fingernail. That's how big it was. Okay. Okay. Now... Uh, we sat there for a couple of minutes. NASA, remember, was new at that point. It was only five years old at that point. So mom said, well, it could be a weather balloon. It could be something the Air Force is doing. It could be something NASA's doing. On the other hand, it might be people from another world. Okay. And that fascinated the 12-year-old. Right. Okay. And I said, wow. Okay. So we got back on the road and started going back uh, and got down to, down to the state road, turned left and headed back towards our, our where we live. I climbed up in the back window of that that Chevy Impala and just sat there and watched that thing as we drove. About 10 minutes later, when that thing decided to go, you know how they show like starships in the movies going gone type of thing? You know, yes, yeah. that's what it did. 
That changed me. Mm-hmm. Thereafter, mom and I each went to the library and got books when new books were coming out all the time. I'd get a book, she'd get a book, we'd read it. Uh, when Eric Von Danigan's book, Charity of the Gods, came out, what, 68 time frame, our copy in the household, mom dog-eared on the top of the pages, I dog-eared on the bottom of the pages. Our book was destroyed, you know, but we followed it very closely. All right, move ahead six years. I've graduated high school in uh, in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1970. I went immediately into the Air Force, and I was in Cameron Bay, Vietnam in 1971. Christmas Eve, 1971, about, about 11.30, a friend of mine and I were walking down to the base chapel to go to midnight mass, partly for something to do and partly to have a, like a Christmas observance, okay? Clear blue, uh, clear dark sky where we were, where we were on the southern, uh, central coast of Vietnam. So um, there wasn't any light pollution. So there was a gazillion stars in the sky, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And as we were walking towards the chapel, and again in the western sky, we saw this streak moving across the sky, and and we said that's odd, you know. Well, eh, maybe it's a jet, and then it stopped. And so wait a minute, helicopters don't move that fast, and so that can't be a helicopter. And jets don't stop in their tracks. We stood there for another two minutes watching this thing, and then suddenly it starts dancing around like a fairy. You know, zigzagging, boom, 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 and then gone like a starship. Okay. Neither one of us really had our mind on midnight mass when we got there, you know. (laughs) Um, And I, amazingly enough, I was fearful in those days, and I didn't tell anybody, and neither did Tom. Okay. In fact, I didn't tell anybody about that sighting until about 15 years ago. I was telling some Native American friends about it. Okay. So, I was well read over the years, so in 2012, I saw an article on CNN.com, a little sidebar story, and it was uh, it was on November 5th, 2012, and I happened to see this little sidebar story, maybe 150 words, it says, UFOs have been declining since the 1980s, maybe they were always just an urban legend, mm. and I said, that doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went out to the National UFO Reporting Center, first time I'd ever been there, pulled down, looked at the, found a page in there that had like year-end totals. And I took year-end totals since about middle 80s and brought it right up to like 2012. And I dropped them into a spreadsheet and the numbers went up like a rocket. Up. And my first impression was, um, what memo didn't the UFOs get? You know, <laughs> you know, so thereafter, I was just finishing uh, uh, 40 years into my life. I, I finally finished my my college degree, my bachelor's degree, and I was just finishing up an entertainment writing degree, which is kind of close to being a journalist. And that's when I went out and started pitching to editors the idea of a weekly column. And I got laughed out of about 12 guys offices. And in one case, a guy yelled security, you know, and it was, and I had one, one editor looked at me and she just looked at me kind of strange and said, and what branded tinfoil do you wear? You know, okay. uh, and, and, and that's pretty much the reception I got. And then uh, the editor at the time at the new Syracuse new times was a guy by the name of Larry Dietrich. And 
when I came up to pitch him my four slides, he said, uh, let's talk. So we sat there and had a cup of coffee and we discussed books that I had read and he had read about some of the same books I had read. So he had a deep knowledge. He said, look, I'm not an enthusiast, but I am sympathetic to the topic matter and I think it needs to be reported. So I gave him a couple of samples. He looked them over. He said, okay, I'm going to try you for a month. I said, okay. And that was better than anybody else's said. He said, right. if we don't like it, if we don't like it at the end of the month, we'll, we'll drop you. I said, okay, fine. So he published four, five articles. I get a phone call from him and he says, uh, come on over. I want to talk to you. I fear, well, that's it. <laughs> it's, it's over <laughs> with, right? You know, I get over there. I'm about five minutes late for the meeting because uh, the, the parking in their parking lot was atrocious at the time because they were having it repaid. And I walked into the meeting and Larry, it was, conference table there were about 10 people sitting there and i walk in and he stops he looks over he looks at me and he says there's our rock star <laughs> and going larry what do you mean he says you're drawing more page views than all of our columnists combined i had a feeling you were going to say that <laughs> okay yeah and since that time um i'm read in i'm read in about 120 countries Wow. Um, I have readership all over the planet. Who would have thought a little dinky weekly newspaper in upstate New York would be the I place know. where I would be speaking to the world, you know? And uh, it's been a very popular column. And I pull good page views both on Facebook and directly out of the newspaper. And uh, it's it's been an interesting experience. Wow. Well, and it just goes to show that the interest that's there, I mean, even though we could say, oh, you know, many people may be afraid, but people are searching for answers. They're looking for answers. You know, I get mail, especially from elders. When I'm saying, you know, octogenarians, that kind of thing. I really want to know if these things are real before I die. Right. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many letters I've had like that, you know, and that weekend I got all the phone calls. I got a lot of that, too, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's deep interest in the topic matter. Um, I, I do run into people who, uh, who just laugh and snicker at the topic matter. But then when we start showing numbers, you, you start seeing a change in their eyes. Right. Know? And so it, it's interesting to see. The biggest problem we have right now is, is the journalism community itself. It, it bought it, it drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago and it is very hesitant to talk about the topic matter. And I still I'll give you an example. Even after the book came out, after the New York Times did a piece on me, after the London Times did a piece on me the next day. OK, um, I'm getting I had more calls from international media than I did from American media, which was interesting and very telling. Hmm. I reached out to over 80 news outlets, major TV stations, media, ra major radio stations and major newspapers in the top in the major cities of the top 10 states, because the top 10 states in the country for UFO sightings represent 52 percent of the sightings in the country. OK. And I reached out to their principal cities. OK. Like in Texas, that was Houston and Dallas and Austin and uh, silence crickets. That's all wow. I got. Wow. OK. And it was only only one person, uh, one guy, one editor in Seattle, Washington, had a freelance to a story. on I me. Mean, of course, the freelance, when he interviewed me, had enough data to write about seattle washington but he also had enough information to write about the major place where the ufos are was california so the day the article comes out i get this 
oh, great. I'm in Seattle, Washington. Great, great. We're getting some kind of ink here, you know? And then all of a sudden, I get this phone call from KABC in Los Angeles. He said, wow, you've set the, uh, your story has set the internet on fire out here. I said, what are you talking about? Well, it turned out uh, the the freelance farmed the article out to San Francisco, uh, SF Gate, which is the San Francisco Chronicles online edition. Mm. And uh, it, it, it was going crazy on Twitter and all this kind of stuff. So they hit me on in late in the afternoon and we talked. But it, it was weird. But the problem was... It fell off the news cycle in about two days because the, the only editor, nobody wanted to talk about details. They just wanted, oh, California's number one, rah, rah, rah. And that's all we got, you know. <laughs> and so it was a little bit longer. When I started getting some of the international press, people started paying attention to me and I started getting more interviews and people wanted to actually talk in earnest. But unfortunately, uh, there's one more thing there. When you look at that December 16th, you know, the Pentagon released a uh, New York Times and political broke the story about the Pentagon. Okay, doing their program. What was very shameful in the journalism community was I was watching like the morning talk shows and the morning news talk shows. You know, they have these little panel pundits and things, and they were sitting there like a deer in the headlights when the topic matter was brought up by the host. They didn't have any background. They weren't read on anything. They couldn't talk to it. And that was the shame of it right there. And that's how I got into a couple of these journalism schools to give a talk. I made that pitch to the professors and said, this is what we saw. And it, we're, we're heading down the road to disclosure probably within the next two years. And uh, it's going to change everything. It's going to change our politics. No longer is politics going to be local politics, state politics, and national politics. It's also going to be exopolitics with those folks, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, – you know, this is this is what we're looking down the barrel of, you know, and it's going to have to be addressed. Now, remember, 1947, we had all that stuff going on that we talked about. Five years later, we had Star Trek. OK, that was an effort to educate the American people. We also had that TV series Alien Nation. What are we going to do if they come and we let them immigrate into our our culture? OK, and they did a very good job of, of uh, addressing the kinds of problems. It's kind of what we see right now with the, the immigrant stuff and the caravan and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was the same kind of flavor. So with all that, I'm and, and you know, you saying that in a couple of years time that this is going to integrate a little bit more. What is your thought on uh, the interaction that the UFOs are having with us now? Why are they here? Why are they, you know, hovering over our technology? What do you think the integration is about? And and, you know, why are they interested? OK. Um, depending on who you talk to. But the people I'm, I'm talking to these days is there's two levels of this. Um, you know, people always say, well, why don't they land on the White House lawn? Eh, they, the, the, the government doesn't want to deal with this thing. OK, it's p too political, too much of a shock the people type of thing. So they've been doing the, the off-worlders have been touching us on an individual basis. OK, bring me back to that point. Uh, what do they want? Well, the people who have been touched by them. Okay, but we, the people, uh, the, the bad term people use is abductees. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, let me tell you a little story about abductees. I believe what I saw too. Everybody gets abducted, gets these people get abducted, they get probed, all this kind of stuff, right? 
And that seemed to be the cliche. I went to a major UFO conference. They had a, what they call an experiencer abductee meeting in the morning, kind of like a morning AA meeting about two hours before the actual day of the convention stuff was going, right? And the first year I was there, I was on press credentials, so they wouldn't let me in. The second year I went there, I went to the shrink who, um, who acted like a moderator for this thing. And I went to her and I said, Yvonne, I'll forget that I'm a press person. I just want to come and learn. I won't write about anybody. I won't out anybody. Just let me come sit in the corner and learn. She's fine. So I did. Now, I expected to go into this meeting and meet 25 or 30 people crying in their coffee. They got probed. Okay. I was prejudiced and biased that way myself. Okay. Mm-hmm. I get in there. There's 175 people in there. And it, it's, this meeting has all the, all the energy of a tent revival. Everything was, everybody was up. And the common story among all of them was we met some incredible beings and they told us to worry about our planet and to take care of our environment. Mm. And this has been a consistent story with experiencers ever since. There, And I got a friend of mine, his name is Tom Conwell. He's up in Troy, New York, and he is doing his research kind of parallel to me and we share data. And uh, Tom went and started studying where they're loitering. And they're extremely interested in our polluted rivers, our our dead oil, coal mine fields, our dead uh, strip mine fields, our fracking fields, uh, our pollution areas. They're very interested in this stuff. They're very concerned about this stuff. And uh, that's, you know, they, they keep telling us, take care of your planet. Mm-hmm. And another thing most people don't know, these guys were, you know, while we were being told in 1968, oh, with the Dr. Condon's report, oh, there's no such thing. Press, you don't need to study this thing. And uh, there's no, not going to be any federal money to research this stuff. It's all baloney. Okay. And that's the word that got put out in 1968 by this congressionally sponsored paper. It was done by Dr. Condon. Um, it turned out to be a whitewash. Okay, 30 percent of the people who worked on that paper said he changed the report. Okay, point one. Uh, He didn't believe in this stuff and he wasn't going to let anybody else believe in it. But what people don't know, and it only came out a few years ago, these off world folks are very concerned about our nuclear weapons. And from about 1965 up to about 1970, they were shutting off our our missiles out in those missile silos out in Montana. Okay, in one particular case, they shut off a flight of 10 missiles. So much shut down that they couldn't, re- that the actual Air Force crew couldn't reboot them. They had to actually bring Boeing in at the engineering level to go out there and reboot these things. Okay, uh, the Russians had a similar uh, set of situations. We found out about this after the fall of the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, we found out, uh, I think it was George, George Knapp from KLAS out in uh, Vegas. Uh, found out that they had situations there where a whole bunch of their missiles came online, started counting down. And these guys couldn't shut them off. And then like, like at the five second point, everything went dark. Okay. They were trying to scare us into not nuking ourselves morbid. So that, that's what, that's why they're here. Okay. To some degree, they're trying to protect us mm-hmm. um, because we're a bunch of, we're a very, very um, primitive society with a box of matches. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh huh. So that's more or less the philosophy there. Now, let's talk about the people who have been touched by them. If we if they were all to come out of the closet at once, it would blow the lid off this thing. Mm. I've got a book over here that was just done by the 
uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation. Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut that went to the moon with, you know, with uh, with Neil Armstrong. Okay, this guy, uh, he, he funded a foundation, and a lot of uh, scientists, uh, lay scientists, got working on it, and they just put out a book. They interviewed a huge number of experiencers, like five or 6,000, something like this. And they learned an immense amount. They sent me a copy here of the review. Uh, the book is 800 pages. Wow. Okay. I mean, and, and for the audience, 800 pages, it's six inches thick. And this is volume one. Oh okay. Um, uh, just what I've read already. Like I said, experiencers, the people who have touched the off-worlders, um, they're the ones who could blow the lid off this thing, and they probably will. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I am I'm overwhelmed. I'm excited. <laughs> There's so much information. I feel like I've been like, wow, so busy with other things. How am I not paying attention to this whole other, you know, UFO community with everything else that I'm doing? But, I mean, I love your passion about it. I love how knowledgeable you are about it. You've gotten me so excited now to want to um, just read more, research more, take a look at your desk reference. I mean, it's it's fascinating for somebody like myself that I'm not one that has been immersed in this community yet. Um, I've had my own personal experiences, not with UFO sightings, but as being um, a healer and doing energy work, I have had many out-of-body experiences with clients, and I've whether call it my imagination or that I'm actually working with other beings who are very helpful with healing. Um, I've had some really weird experiences of my own that are, feel very true and real to me. It doesn't April, feel imagined. You, April, you just nailed it. Okay. I did. You just, you just nailed it. All right. The big thrust right now. See, for a long time, the UFO community was uh, what I'm going to call the MUFON guys. They were all nuts and bolts hardware. Can't wait to go look at the cockpit of one of these things. Okay. <laughs> it, that's That was the mindset with the investigators. In fact, when our, my book came out, uh, uh, we had a lot of pushback from that community because we didn't vet them right down to the individual sighting. Hey, how is I? How are we supposed to vet one hundred and twenty-one thousand? Okay, uh, but the bottom line was our attitude was, I don't want to look at, sit here and look at the individual ant. I want to look at the ant farm, the ant hill, mm-hmm. and that's what we. That's what our scientific research was. We we studied the raw sightings, and I had a lot of criticism about that, but it's taught us a lot. I'll give you an example. Um, Linda discovered this one point that I'm going to tell you. There. In northern states, if you look at the sightings, January through about oh, April, it's a flat it's a flat number for every single state. And then about May, it starts ticking up. And then June, July, August are through the roof, and it starts trailing back down. And by the time you get to October, November, December, it goes back down to that fine little same number you saw in the earlier part of the year. Now, who are those people? Turned out they are dog walkers, smokers, and people out having a smoke while walking the dog. Mm. Okay. They're out there day in and day out, rain or shine. So I know that MUFON investigators, when they go to look at a month's worth of sighting reports, one of the first things they scan for is smoker, uh, smoking and dogs because they know those people are out there and they're reliable, uh, they're reliable uh, witnesses because they are out there and they know what the sky looks like. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Well, Linda was noticing I had generated all these charts and 
shipping them over onto her server and she was starting to put it together and then she looked one day she looked over the terminal at me and oh 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 our computers were in our sewing room because we do a lot of sewing mm-hmm. and we used to own a fabric store so we did a lot of sewing you know and um the day after the new york times article mentioned that our computers where we wrote the book sat in our sewing room the next day, Vogue.com did an article about UFOs. So Linda and I are credited with the first ever UFO article in Vogue magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Yay for sewing, right? Yeah, yeah. who knew we were sewists, you know? So, well, the bottom line was, uh, I just lost my train of thought. What was I saying before the sewing? Oh, um, help me, help me. What was I talking well, well, what triggered this was when I was telling you about my experience of how I never really saw a UFO, but yep. and the healing experiences, and you said I hit it right on the head. Okay, okay. Well, one more aspect of this. Linda was uh, looked across the terminal at me and said, did you notice there's a latitude difference with the seasonal charts? I said, what? And as you move down into the lower and middle latitudes in the United States, that peak I told you about in June, July, August mm-hmm. starts starts flattening out. If you get down in the southern states, it's like a picket fence. It's statistically fat, flat across the bottom. So we figured out that, one, temperate weather was a population, temperate weather, and time of day were the drivers. Okay? Okay. Uh, that was the big deal. Now, here's the other issue uh, we were talking about where you nailed it. The smart people on this stuff these days are talking that, the key to this whole thing with UFOs is consciousness. Mm-hmm. They really, truly want us to move up in our energy and our, uh, and touch them. And our consciousness is kind of anchored down here in the heavy material world, as they say. And the people who make the best contacts seem to be people who are a little bit more creative musicians, artists, that type of thing, because their heads already in a, a, a more elastic reality state. And they can come, the off world is seen to be able from a consciousness standpoint, meet kind of in a middle ground. So are all the UFO contacts, because a, you, a flying saucer landed in the backyard or hovered over your house like Whitley Strieber with communi- communion. No, what we're beginning to feel is going on is we think a lot of the contacts that have been made from the off-worlders has been uh, done on a psychic level and conscious, mm-hmm. uh, con- uh, plugging into our consciousness, usually when we're in deep sleep, because that's when our consciousness shifts into the delta range. So, yeah, th- that's a very real thing to be able to touch other beings. I lived in a Buddhist monastery for seven years back in the 90s, and, um, uh, and consciousness is it. Lamas and I had long talks about this. Yeah, makes makes total sense to me. That's been my experience as well. So, and we are consciousness, right? I mean, we're not the physical body. We are. So, yeah. So, and that to me is like a whole nother hour uh, podcast. Invite me back to talk about consciousness. You'll get you'll get the monk talking to you about the about about uh, about consciousness. Uh, One of the one of the points that one of the lamas brought up. one of his, this one llama that I knew, uh, he went walking out in the, the hills, the foothills of the Catskills. And he had one of his uh, aides with him. And they made a little backpack and went for a day walk, you know, and they had lunch with him and everything. And they sat down on a big rock and decided to um, 
uh, you know, do a little meditation after lunch. Okay. And then the Lama says to this other person who I knew well, oh, we have guests. And you looked over across the valley, just peeking up from the other side of the hill, other mountain or hill. And there was a very shiny object kind of bobbing up, kind of taking peaks very, very shyly. And the Lama simply said, show yourselves. And they did. They lifted, they, they came up and it was blowing my friend away, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was the nature of the, the conversation. He said, hey, move a little bit to the left. And the, the, the saucer moved to the left and move a little bit to the right. It moved to the right, you know. And and it, it was a very interesting thing. And I've heard other aides talk about this kind of a thing with some of the Lamas. And the Lamas are plugged into deep consciousness okay so there you go yeah well we'll definitely love to have you back maybe even our uh our new we have a new web series out it's called conversations on the path and it's i guess you can call it more of a video podcast we actually sit down we have the cameras we've had some uh great guests that are on and we're so close to each other you know we're all in new york it'd be great to even get um tom conwell uh love to meet you and linda maybe we could just have a whole group sit down together um on our new web series and uh have a talk about all all of this that is possible Possible. And I'll, I'll give you a hook there. Um, last year, uh, Pine Bush, uh, which has a, a great UFO festival, okay, in the little town of Pine Bush, and uh, they literally take over Main Street. And, you know, there's vendors out there and everything, but uh, there's also a, a KGRA. Uh, which is a, a, a podcast network. They, they, they are there. I got interviewed by them last year. Uh, I wasn't supposed to speak last year. And they had a really nasty storm come through and three tornadoes touched down in Crawford Ca- Township there and took out their power grid. And they had to postpone the UFO conference for like three weeks. Wow. But a lot of the speakers were under tight schedules, you know, and uh, they could they lost most of them. And uh, the the uh, person from the uh, township that organizes the uh, conference called me up and said, sure, are you still available? And I said, sure. And then, of course, they needed an MC and I'm a Toastmaster. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll even MC it for you for nothing. You know, so I'm down there. Well, I've been booked there for this year. Oh, great. And okay. when is that going to be? I, I give me 20 seconds and I will tell you, I don't remember the top date, the date over the top of my head here, but the date is going to be something like uh, on the road here. Uh, I'm, I'm scheduled into uh, eight major UFO conferences next year. So it's going to be the year of the suitcase for me. This is May 18th. Okay. Awesome. In Pine Bush. And uh, it's a great festival and that might be, you know, where we might want to go and do this, you know, so. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, Cheryl, it has been a pleasure. It's been fascinating, uh, invigorating for me, and I'm so glad to have you as a guest on our podcast today. Thank you so much. Anytime, April. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time!